0: However, standing by right now, is the one and the only, Sean Mooney, who?
1: Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. (laughs) After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing
0: Uh, Well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be?
1: Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you have had a great week so far. We're coming off an episode with Savio Vega. And if you know anything about the history of professional wrestling during the Territories era... You know uh, just what an impact professional wrestling in Puerto Rico had on the business. Uh, back during that time, at some point, if you were coming up, or even if you were a big name, you spent time in Puerto Rico. And there were a few territories where the fans were more passionate about their wrestling. I mean, to the point where it was dangerous. You've heard all the stories. Uh, Savio Vega saw it all, and he is truly a legend in Puerto Rico. And during that episode, he shared some great stories. And it was awesome to see just how excited he he still is about his days in professional wrestling, um, just as much as he was back then. And I want to thank Juan Rivera, uh, also known as Savio Vega, for coming on PTSM. I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Savio. With that, let's get to our guest this week. Uh, when you hear the name Jarrett, uh, for most of our listeners, you think of uh, je double double t Jeff Jarrett. Well, Jeff has certainly accomplished a great deal in his career in professional wrestling. But there's another Jarrett who may not have the list of accomplishments in the ring, like his son. But Jerry Jarrett is someone who has had an incredible impact on the industry and is responsible for many innovations uh, to sports entertainment, as we call it now that are still being used today. So, you know, let's get to my conversation with a legend in the business, Jerry Jarrett. Well, my guest this week has been involved in the business of professional wrestling his entire life. Uh, And I mean that. I mean, indirectly, he was helping to sell tickets uh, for wrestling at the age of three. (laughs) He is also one of the true innovators, of the entertainment and showmanship that has become so much a part of professional wrestling uh, all the way till today, as well as a great ambassador for the industry over the years. Welcome, Jerry Jarrett. Jerry, thank you. uh, Jerry, thank you for coming on to uh, Primetime with Sean Mooney.
1: Yes. Well, I'm flattered that you asked me, Sean. I said before we started the show, uh, we've just missed each other's careers intersecting a number of times, uh, I got to WWE probably six months after you left.
0: Yeah, it, it's it is pretty amazing, and uh, yeah, we were very close. As I left the '93, you came uh, to uh, uh, at least work in Connecticut. I know you had been in touch with Vince over the years before that, but you actually were in Connecticut, and uh, we'll get into that. But I wanted to uh, really kind of go back and uh, trace your career because, like I said. Uh, It's been a part of your life, I mean, since you were a very, very small child, so uh, you've really not known anything else in your life. Well, uh, that's
1: partially true.
0: Um,
1: You know, I I was promoting wrestling while I was in high school, Uh, but then I went to college and had a little sabbatical from it, and then when I graduated, I made bicycles for murray ohio manufacturing company for about four years
0: yeah well and and i know there's a lesson in there too because i think that could have been something that uh you know you could have done your entire life i think you were offered a vice presidency and you decided that wasn't what you wanted to do but uh it's amazing how, how fate steps in but you even knew then that you wanted to control your own destiny i guess that's the way the best way to say it
1: Yeah, yeah. I told Bill Hannon, who was the president, and he had just demoted all of the executives that his daddy put in place. And I I said, Bill, I'm I'm not made emotionally to when your son takes over to to be put out to pasture. (laughs) So I don't know what I'm going to do. I may end up selling pencils on 4th and Church (laughs) But I'm going to find something else to do. And he thought I was crazy. You know, because it offered the position I was offered, director of purchasing, at uh, 26 years old was
0: something most people wouldn't have turned down. Well, uh, but I I think you had a little more confidence in yourself that you would not end up selling pencils. I mean, uh, given the fact that you were promoting uh, wrestling events at 14, and that to me is pretty amazing. Did you just have an understanding of the business early on?
1: Uh, no, no, I really didn't. I, <laughs> I was a, I was a big fan,
0: yeah, but, right,
1: right. Uh, you know, they called me in and said, you, now that you've got your driver's license, it was a hardship license. Why don't you run some of the spot shows? And I said, what do you mean run them? And he said, promote them. All you have to do is go put out window cards and, sell tickets and rent a building and you're in business. Mm-hmm. So I really and literally, that's how simple it was. Um, I didn't do any of the booking or any of the matchmaking. As a matter of fact, I wasn't smart to the business. Yeah. But I, I was smart enough to know that if you bought the Sports editor of the newspaper in the little country town. A lunch, he'd give you a good write-up.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you understood promotions. You may not have understood the business, but man, uh, not a lot of people at fourteen and a uh, little older than that would would uh, have that understanding that that's what it's all about. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I, I was I was fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> still humble after all these years uh it, you know you you, you talked about uh, you know, you said at 14 you weren't smart to the business and uh you know listening to uh an interview one of the interviews you've done and you you mentioned how heartbroken you were when you found out uh what the you know the real business of wrestling was um but it really got me thinking about it uh, first of all, tell us that uh, you know about that—the fact that uh, you know you. I guess you 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 put it when you believe in something and love something so much, you you just think it's got to be that way.
1: Yes, and you know I I cried when my mother smartened me up about Santa Claus. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to know that she was Santa Claus. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, eight or ten or twelve years old. I was a believer a long time, but, um, you know, I'm just, I love, um, I guess the, I loved the romantic poets when I was in school. And mm-hmm. and it's kind of a romantic life to look forward to the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and, and. Than the reality of life that very little in it is real. Yeah, it to, to me it's a downer.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, I was riding in the in the back seat of one of the cars, uh, to go check up in some town that uh, Nick Gulis and Roy Welch were running, and I kind of dozed off. But then when I woke up. They were talking about the business and <laughs> talking about high spots and, uh, you know, how stupid the promoters were and uh, let's let's have the match and get it over with and get out of this SHIT hole. Mm. And you know, I I, I loved the the, the small towns. I thought that they had character and atmosphere and. But no Santa Claus and no wrestling shoots.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you you said that uh, when you told uh, the 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 promoter, they actually like sent one of the guys away to say, "Hey, gee, I'm so glad that you told us that he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, giving up matches." He was. <laughs> you know, he oh was, yeah, well, I would was throwing come, matches.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would come back, and yeah. Roy Welch would. Call me in the office and say, Okay, give me a report. How are the matches? And yeah. I said, Well, the main event was real good, but I believe those two guys in the first match were faking it. Yeah. And he said, Boy, I will have a talk with them. <laughs> and, you know, they, they didn't see any need to smarten me up. I was counting the tickets and bringing the money home.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, kayfabe was uh, very, very strong back then. But, uh, you know, it got me thinking, though, and I don't know if you've ever uh, done any research or, or have had people tell you how this business all happened. Uh, they, you know, it's based on Carnival. Uh, it's it's theater in a lot of ways. But it's also, you know, there's the athleticism in it, and a lot of amateur wrestlers became professional wrestlers because that was a way for them to make money after uh, they had their wrestling career end. But I've often wondered why it It became a work that because, you know, we have the MMA today and you wonder if if back then maybe they could have made amateur wrestling, you know, you know, a shoot. Have you ever given that some thought?
1: Yeah. And and, you know, my son, my youngest son was a a very good amateur wrestler in high school. Mm -hmm. And I just absolutely loved it. In all the years that I promoted, uh, I liked the guys that were sh- known as shooters. Ali right. Vassari and, and uh, Billy Robertson and Luthez. You know, I, I really admired them. But if you will watch the Olympics, uh, the Olympics, that's the height of amateur wrestling. Yeah. And sometimes... The stadium is a third full. Yeah, uh, I would go to, you know, my high, my son played football, and you you'd have to get there early to get a seat in the stadium. But you could go to the wrestling meets, and you could have a dove hunt and not shoot yeah. anybody. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody yeah. came. Right. Yeah. And and I think that, that that's the roots
0: of it yeah what yeah
1: what propelled it was that the promoters when when most of the people in the business were shooters, and the promoter would try to get one of them to take a fall or or put his opponent over
0: right.
1: if they didn't want to, they would just tell the promoter to go to hell and he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. So oftentimes the the lesser wrestler would be the one with charisma and could draw the house. So the promoters, and you know me at seventy six, and and I cut my teeth under Roy Welch, who would be over a hundred, I guess, if he were alive today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you know I talked to him often about it, and. He he, he said that Carl Gotch was one of the reasons oh, yeah. that the uh, that the promoters started leaning to the workers rather than the shooters. Yeah. Uh, you know it's it's it makes sense that the promoters uh, would want somebody that they could handle uh, or not handle influence and so I took the opposite approach during my wrestling promotion career and I tried to allow the fans to suspend disbelief and and make it as real as it could be without hurting each other Mm -hmm. and the brawls and the action in and out of the ring and all the crazy stuff we did in the Tennessee territory, at least it looked real. You know, people, people got angry when they found out the concession stand brawl in Tupelo, Mississippi was not real. Bill, (laughs) Bill Watts got really angry at me when he found out that Jerry Lawler really didn't hurt. Um, well, Clay, you know the the movie star Taxi. Oh, Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. Y- yeah,
0: really, Bill Watson.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, he ca- he called me to thank me for protecting the business and and having Lawler beat the hell out of Andy Kaufman and send him to the hospital. Yeah, he spent a couple of days in
0: the hospital. He really yeah yeah. It. But Andy
1: yeah. Andy was a believer in kayfabe. Yeah. And and so he went, you know, he wore that neck brace around Hollywood for a month. Yeah. And uh but yeah, that was funny. Bill Watts saw the little clip on national television and he just knew
0: it was real. Yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> if they pulled it over with him, man, that's 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 saying something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're right though. I mean, it's it's all about storylines and and people uh, you know, and I knew even back in the day when, when you know, in the '80s, that uh, most of the people, the, the vast majority of people that are in that arena, know that that what it is, but they want to believe and they want to go for the ride, and it's all about storytelling. It's all all about the drama and 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 uh, and building these storylines. And uh, I think that maybe you know today, and it's another discussion. It's, we've lost some of that, but that. that Back in those days, where you could go months and months, and when you had the territories, and you had these guys that would come in, and you might have an eight month run, and then the guy would disappear, you know, and then you'd bring him back, and it, it, you know, that was just a uh, uh, storytelling at its best. Back back in those times.
1: Yes, that was. Uh, I call it the glory days of wrestling yeah. because yeah. when a wrestler would come in. Uh, To the territory to work for us. Yeah. I told him I would tell them I would sit them down and I would say, you know, when you go to the Rocky movie and and see the fight scene. Wouldn't you really be upset? Because you're emotionally into it. And when I saw the movie, when it first came out everybody in the theater stood up and applauded when, when Rocky made his big comeback. Yeah. yeah. And I would, t- I would tell them if you do something that exposes the business in the ring, it's the same thing as if you took a wide shot during the Rocky movie, the fight mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. And, and, saw the cameras and the directors and the lighting people all around the ring and some some guy sitting in the back hollering, retake, let's shoot that over. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd be terribly angry. Let's uh, let the people that have paid their $5 for our ticket prices then, let's let them get their money's worth. And it doesn't matter if logic prevails at the water cooler the next day. Yeah. What matters is that while they are there, they can suspend their disbelief.
0: Yeah. They get away from everything and they go for the ride. I mean, it, it's it's true. Yeah. And, and so thank goodness that you decided not to sell bicycles because uh, it brought you back to the business. And um, all this time, I guess you were, uh, when you got back in, uh, acquiring knowledge to the point where you were still pretty young when you started the uh, the CWA, the Continental Wrestling Association, and how did that though all come about? Where where you went into business? Uh well, I worked
1: for Nick Gulis and Roy Welch to start right. out with, yeah, mm-hmm. and and my mother started out as a ticket seller on Tuesday night at the Hippodrome, mm-hmm. but she was a sharp lady and ended up being the bookkeeper for the wrestling office. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I came into it, I was, I had a pretty much open door policy or chance to promote Mm -hmm. my mother objected as strong as you can object. She threatened to quit if they let me start wrestling. And and she lined it up with an old shooter named Sailor Miranda to beat me up for three months to dissuade me from getting in the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. But I had Tojo whispering in my ear and saying, you can take it. The real business is not like that, Jerry. So, Tojo was teaching me the work and Sailor was beating me up. And it it went from there to finally Sailor probably lied to him to my mother and told her, well, you don't have to worry about anybody roughing Jerry up; he can take care of himself. I think Sailor really felt sorry for me because he put <laughs> put me over a lot more than I deserved. But um, then you know I had my opportunity to book. And I just started out. I brought back my heroes, Don and Al Green and Jackie Fargo, and teamed with Tojo and turned him babyface. And it seemed like everything we did in the early days uh, worked. And we ended up going from Ellis Auditorium, a small building downtown Memphis to the Mid-South Coliseum that seized $10,400. Yeah. And, and we had a phenomenal 20-year run.
0: Yeah. Pretty amazing. And uh, getting into the ring, though, I mean, was that something I, – I think originally you did it because you're going to get uh, some extra money to do yeah. it. But was it something, though, that you, you wanted to do, uh, knowing and loving the business? Or did it just kind of uh, – it happened, well, like I said, for a few extra bucks, and maybe you thought you'd learn uh, a little bit more about the business.
1: Uh, no, uh, Tojo encouraged me. They, back in those days, they paid the referee 5 10 or a big house. They gave him $15. Uh-huh. And, and the opening match would make 40 or 50 And so it just made sense that if I'm going to make the 300-mile trip, yeah. It's a lot better to make forty or fifty dollars than it is ten or fifteen.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, of course, then you know when things started clicking, my involvement in the ring helped propel me as a promoter.
0: Right.
1: And uh, you know, I I quit wrestling as soon as I could. Celebrity. Some people live off of it. Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. They all thrive on celebrity. It was always, from the very beginning, a big nuisance to me. Because I think I'm basically an introverted person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as soon as I felt like I had the talent, I quit, you know, the... For me, just to promote—that's
0: what I did. Yeah, but uh, uh, were you doing it though at the same time? Were you still involved?
1: Oh yeah, I was uh, wrestling yeah. the whole time.
0: Wow. And, and uh, but it, but did you enjoy? Uh, besides, you said the fame part of it was something that you could have cared less about. But what about uh, actually being in the ring? And I know that uh, you always considered yourself not a big man, but right, uh, right. You was that something that you did? And you look back on and you really uh, look back at it fondly.
1: Yeah, I I loved it because being small,
0: yeah.
1: I could uh, I could sell, and and really get the crowd worked up. And of course, the goal of the promoter is to accomplish that. So I could assist in my own end, uh, and so I spent a career. Um, making the heels look very, very, very mean mm-hmm. and callous. And, uh, but, you know, I, w- I would see older guys wrestle and, and I would think I hate it that they have to go to this length to make a living. And so as soon as I didn't think I was a cute little guy again,
0: a boy toy, I certainly quipped. <laughs> yeah, that could uh, take its toll for sure. Uh, you mentioned Jerry Lawler. I know, I know he's somebody that uh, was I- involved in your life, I mean, uh, forever. I mean, it seems like from very early on. How did that relationship first begin? Because uh, he wasn't, I think when you met him, he wasn't a wrestler at the time. No,
1: no. He he was a kid, and he, <laughs> he drew... Banners. He was a talented artist, yeah, and he yeah. and he worked for Jackie Fargo at a radio station there in in uh, Memphis. Uh-huh. And so Jackie asked me one day, "Would I allow him to show some of his art pictures of the wrestlers that he'd drawn?" And I said, mm-hmm. "Sure." Mm-hmm. And then. He did that, and then lo and behold, two or three months later, Jackie came to me and he said uh, will you will you give him a tryout on TV?" and mm-hmm. I said, "Sure again mm-hmm. and from Jerry's first match, you could see that he was very, very talented and and had charisma with yeah,
0: the at that presence yeah
1: so. You know the story went from there. He, uh, you know, I, I promoted him as our number one guy, and he he carried the ball well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, he had quite certainly has had quite a career. Uh, you mentioned working with Nick Ellis and uh, Roy Welch, and this is that was a uh, a union for quite a bit of time, and then I think what uh, was it, Welch? I don't know if he became ill or he got out of the business and that allowed you to uh, get a piece of it. How did that all happen? Because yeah. I want to build up to the point to where you got your own, uh, your, your own promotion for the first time. And yeah. I knew Lawler yeah. was involved in that, but prior to that, um, yeah, what was I'll, your I'll, business I'll,
1: I'll try to make it very, very brief. Yeah. Roy Welch would talk to me about what I thought of the matches and what I would do next week, because he'd give me a ride and that, three and a half hour ride to Memphis sometime four hours had a, gave us a lot of talking time. So he liked my ideas and, and let me start booking. So I built a pretty good reputation and Jim Barnett, uh, flew from Australia to Hendersonville and, the proverbial made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, if you'll come to Atlanta, I bought it. We're in a war with the Gunkles, And the only way I can win that war is to outdraw her at the box office. Uh And he said, do you think your Memphis formula will work? I said, well, Mr. Barnett will work anywhere. And he's, but I don't want to go anywhere. I'm at home and I'm making a good living. Uh And he said, my boy, I will pay you whatever you want. Well, how do you turn that down? So Hmm. I said, well, what I want is 500 a day, a a
0: day then. Wow.
1: A day. (sighs) And he said, no problem. Wow. If you don't draw me sellouts, uh-huh. I will fire you. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to make several thousand dollars just while he gets back from Australia. Yeah, yeah. Whatever <laughs> and, happens. Yeah. But everything worked. Luthes helped me. He allowed Terry Garvin, who played the effeminate role, to slap him in the ring. Uh, And, you know, everybody helped. Johnny Walker busted his butt when I dressed him up as wrestling, too. Um, Everything worked. And uh, we were able to pack the city auditorium consistently. And I went to Jim and I said, why don't we go to the Omni? We can't get all the people in. So that's where wrestling started at the Omni.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And, and you mentioned Australia. it's kind of a sidetrack here. But a lot of people don't realize how big, uh, I guess you'd call it a territory. It was a vast territory that, uh, you know, a lot of that was like a part of, a, you know, a wrestler's travels that, uh, that uh, Burnett really uh, had quite a, a business going on over there. Oh, yeah,
1: very good, but he just, you know, Jim is the kind of guy that likes the bright lights of New York or Las Vegas more than he does the outback of Australia, so he wanted Mm -hmm. to get back here, and Lester Welch wanted to, for sure, get away from Ann Guckel, so, that opened him up an opportunity to buy the territory
0: at a very very cheap price mm. so you made you made a lot of money though in and uh it sounds like it went really well but what what brought you back home? Oh, I've got off my story yeah the, oh, well if if you have more to say about the australia I'd no no, I mean yeah. I got
1: off with my yeah. other story yeah. to your first question Yeah. I do that a lot. I get
0: off the track. (laughs) How
1: how I got a uh, percentage. Nick and Roy called and said, if you'll come back home, we will give you 10% of the whole territory. And so I, I knew that I didn't know what it was wrong right then, but I knew when I left, 10% Ten percent would be a lot more than five hundred a day that I was making for Barnett. Wow. So I gave Jim my notice, and and uh, he and I remained friends till his death. Uh, but I went back, and then Roy got sick, and uh, Nick offered to sell me an additional forty percent. Uh, you know where I'd have Roy's interest. For Mm $50,000. And so, you know, that's a lot of money back in that day, but I had made a lot of money. So I made the deal. It turned out that I thought I was buying 50%. I was really just buying an option on the 40%. And so that led to our breakup. Yeah. Me and Nick Goulas and, uh, you know the Lord works in mysterious ways. I yeah. went home and cried, thinking my world had come to an end when he and I had our falling out.
0: I mean, literally cried. Yeah. What? Why would he do that? Though I mean, after you'd been around uh, he, him he, and, and he loved uh, his son too much. Uh,
1: his son was not particularly gifted as an athlete, uh, and and. George wanted to come to Memphis, where all the sellouts were happening, mm-hmm. and I just wasn't going to have it because I knew what would happen. And um, so, anyway, yeah,
0: but split. he screw, he screwed you in that deal, though. I mean, it wasn't it written up where I mean that 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 wasn't a, a fair deal. So it looked like something that he had planned.
1: I mean, oh yeah, that, uh, he and yeah. he and his lawyer. because of my naivety Uh. he and his lawyer set it up where I was buying an option and and, you know I was naive I I read the contract but you know how all the fine print and you skim over it and and I trusted
0: yeah I mean you've been with them for years and years and years
1: yes and
0: uh,
1: anyway uh it really turned out to be the blessing of my life, yeah. because it gave me a chance to go in business for myself and
0: accumulate some wealth. Yeah, well, absolutely. And then, uh, and we mentioned with the, the CWA. And so, how did that uh, form? Because I know that uh, Lawler would be involved. Uh, I know your mom was uh, still a big part of it. Uh, you know, how did that uh, all come together? That you were able to, you know, put that that deal together and put together a very very sec- successful promotion. Well, when This is 1977, I, right?
1: Yes, when I broke away from Nick, I needed to give Lawler an incentive because I had everything built around him. So I gave him 10% uh-huh. from the time I opened up Louisville, Evansville and Lexington, Kentucky. Uh-huh. I gave my mother 25% of that of each town the promotion mm-hmm. so uh it ended up the jerry had 10% of the whole territory my mother had 25% of three towns mm-hmm. the three of the major towns except she didn't have any part of memphis
0: and uh you know, it's stayed that way. Yeah. But, uh, Jerry, what do you think it was, though, about the way you, I guess, booked uh, or, or, or put these promotions together? Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, back then, there were a lot of promotions that didn't go anywhere. And I know that, uh, you know, Bill Watts struggled at times. Uh, the Bon uh, were had, uh, you know, I think they eventually went bankrupt. Well, what was it you think that uh, you were able to have put together such successful promotions?
1: You know, since I've been away from the business, I've had time to reflect. Yeah. If you had asked me that 30 years ago, I would have said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I had some basic beliefs. And so when a wrestler would come in, I would have the talk about allow the fans to suspend this belief. Mm-hmm. If you only know how to do an arm drag or a wrist lock then just do that don't think you have to make a hundred moves and then you know I know you watch television and uh, but all these acrobatic things that you see they expose the business so I think that was a principle that really, really made us different. The other thing was, I would set everybody down, and I would say, now, I'm not preaching to you, Mm -hmm. but I want you to just think about this. Your fingerprint that God stamped on you from the instant you were conceived is the only fingerprint exactly like it. In the entire world, not just the United States, in the entire world. You're a very unique person. And if you try to be gorgeous, I t- told Terry Garvin this. I said, I love it that you want to do the flamboyant gimmick. mm mm-hmm. And I will help you and I'll push you. But the first time you try to act like gorgeous George instead of Terry Garvin, uh, it'll be over mm-hmm. because you won't draw any money. Yeah. I told Jim Cornette, Jim, don't try to be like Bobby Heenan. You are unique unto yourself. Okay. Yeah. Um, so everybody that worked for me, I... I was tutoring them to be themselves and to be realistic. And uh, I, th- I think compelling storylines and putting these unique individuals, you know, I, I, I wish Vince would see that, you know, he's having trouble getting somebody with charisma
0: <clears throat>
1: out of his current stable. Well, a a guy sitting down memorizing a script doesn't have any chance of projecting his uniqueness that God gave him, his yeah. his personality, his and and therefore project and be a charismatic character. It's all it's like they're rubber stamped, and you that just won't work. Yeah.
0: Well, and you said the word unique. You got to be unique, and you got to be true to yourself with that. And and we saw that we've seen that over and over again. When when people find that, that's when that magic happens. And and we'll talk about some of those stars. But I think also that was was uh, great about the way you looked at the business is it was you know the old school where you know there would like you said they go in there and the storylines were stale and they would just keep redoing them and they would say let's do this one. You're always looking at something different. And, uh, you know, for example, with, you know, presentations, you were among the, the, the first that used music, which today people go, what? You know, but nobody used music on entrances or, or, li- or lights or, you know, flashing lights and that kind of thing. Were you always looking for different things to, you know, to, uh, to, to try to see how audience would react to it? Was that, uh, you know, you used faster guys that you know, young guys that weren't these giant, uh, you know, behemoths? Uh, quick moving in the ring It was something that people weren't used to seeing Were you always kind of looking for something different?
1: Oh absolutely I My attention span is is not very long huh. And so I would sit and watch a match And if I got bored with it myself I, I assumed that the fans were not really into it So I would, I would adapt and I would tell the wrestlers, you know, move, speed it up. Uh, now, uh, uh, the rock and roll express took to it a hundred percent.
0: Yeah.
1: Billy Robertson didn't take to it a hundred percent. And I really liked Billy and, and loved his work and his shootability. Yeah. But I could never get Billy to s- speed it up a notch.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, Billy would say that it's his size. And then along comes Bam Bam Bigelow that's bigger than Billy Robertson. Yeah. And, and Bam Bam could go 90 miles an hour. Right. So, you know, we we wanted a faster pace. We wanted the people to be individualistic. Uh I watched my children who were fascinated to the point of getting in trouble with me not coming to dinner with MTV. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I just tried to copy the fast paced clips that were MTV in the early mm-hmm. days.
0: So So do you feel do you feel that you always had that ability to read what um, your audience wanted uh, in a sense, you know, with the psychology of it, like you said, you could watch a match and go, I don't think they're going to like this or, you know, the having the understanding that when you'd have, you know, you went after younger talent who would be these good looking guys, you know, heart throbs, but you also wanted them to be you know, masculine because uh, you wanted the girls to bring their boyfriends. And, right. and so did you feel like you kind of always had that gift, I guess was what you'd call it.
1: Um, Well, you know, um, we're getting into my spirituality. (laughs) Yes, I think God gives everybody certain talents. And I can't sing happy birthday and stay in tune. If if we're having a birthday party, my wife will nudge me to not (laughs) sing very loud. But... A lot of it, Sean, is just common sense. Uh I knew Uh that I was not really the boss in the wrestling business. I knew that the fans that bought the tickets were the boss. Uh And so I would sit in the back of the Louisville Gardens or the Mid-South Coliseum or the Evansville Coliseum, Rough Arena, it was wonderful because I could sit up and the fans didn't even know I was there Mm. and I would listen to them and they would tell me which wrestlers they hated and wanted to get beat up and which wrestlers they loved and felt sorry for. And boy, if you watch the matches and don't listen to them, you're you're soon to be out of business. Uh, I had a, a little pilot of Olympus wrestling and it was up in not far from Philadelphia. So we had a lot of ECW fans and they started chanting, you missed the high spot. You missed the high spot. You suck. That's a phony punch. And so I went to the wrestlers afterwards and I said, why didn't you just pick up a chair and one of you bust the other one over the head? They were telling you that your match was phony and not real. Uh. So, you know, it's, it's that philosophy. I love amateur wrestling uh, because it's real. And I love professional wrestling when it looks real.
0: Yeah. Well, and you and you, you talk about you say it's common sense, though. But if if everybody could do it, they they, <laughs> they would have been successful in the business. And you saw them come and go. And uh, you know, before we we talk more about uh, you know the WWF, the WWE, there was this vast uh, you know the land of of territories that uh, that were across the United States, Canada, uh, other places around the world that. People respected it, it would, and uh, NWA was a big part of this alliance. But um, was that really a, a great time for wrestling, or was it inevitable that it would become what it did with uh, you know what we see today as the WWE, and then we've got other independents and some that are emerging? But was that in your mind, uh, you know, the greatest period of time, or or not?
1: No, they. Oh, I think. Yes, I think during that run, uh, wrestling was as hot and had such appeal that it's never had since. But I I felt like, you know, I dropped out of the NWA. Mm. And the reason I left is I would talk to Fritz Von Erich and I'd talk to Jim Crockett Sr., and I talked to Vince McMahon Sr. And, you know, Tunney up in Canada and uh, Roy Shire out on the West Coast. I talked to all of them and I would say, you know, I am the baby in this business. And I don't want for all of y'all to be gone and me being the last man standing. Why don't you bring people in that are younger and teach them, share your wisdom and knowledge with them? Yeah. And they swatted me off like a fly.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and so what happened was, uh, the best way to sum it up, there was a bunch of us going to try to compete with Vince. Eddie Einhorn was behind it. So we uh, met. We met the
0: baseball. A- the baseball uh Yes, yeah, right. and,
1: and he, he had some capital, so we met up in Chicago, and Vince McMahon heard about the meeting, and he called Eddie, and Eddie asked us, should I take his call? and said, Yes, so we came back, and he said, Vince McMahon was just giving me some friendly advice, and he said I was wasting my time. He said, the people in that room all think they are the smartest people in the world, and you won't be able to get a census if you try to order pizza for lunch. <laughs> and you know what? He was 100% right. Yeah. This group, um, you know, they, they chose to let me produce the TV in Memphis and in uh, Louisville and we put it on in New York for eight weeks and we ran a show in the Meadowlands that was just short of a complete sellout mm. and that night Bill Watts called me before the event and said I, I hear it's a, almost a sellout and I said yeah it is Bill he said well I'm pulling out of the group mm. I want to do my own thing yeah. and Jim Crockett Jr. came to me at the event and said uh do whatever you want to but I'm leaving mm. and then Vern Gagne was in charge of the box office and he took the money and nobody ever saw a penny of it <laughs> yeah
0: so in so, a sense their their egos did them in and and did you know then that this was the demise oh, of, oh, yeah. of the territories yeah.
1: yes yes I knew that it was coming to an end.
0: Uh, wow and, and I know you had great respect for uh, uh Vince senior and yes. um but you developed quite a relationship with 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 Vince uh, McMahon jr um that that uh Lasted for, you know, it lasted many, many years. And I know you were really close to how did that relationship develop? And I'm assuming it was not too far off from that time. Yeah. Uh,
1: Vince Sr. called me one night. I mean, we had a lot of conversations, but yeah. usually it was about business. But he called me one night and he never called at night, he called during the daytime in my office. Mm-hmm. And He called me late one night and he said, Jerry, every conversation we have, you say, if there's anything I can do for you, Vince, to repay you. Because Vince Vince and Eddie Graham are the two that talked the Alliance into letting me have an NWA membership, and they never do that before. Wow! You know they protected the old guard, yeah. but yeah. they uh, they let me they let me be the NWA representative, and then after that they asked, "Do you care if Vince? I mean, if Nick Gulas is also an NWA?" I said, "Not at all." Mm. You know, the best promotion will survive. So. Vince Sr., I felt I owed him beyond our friendship.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I would say, Vince, if there's anything I can do, you're in New York, you've got the talent and the big towns, but if you, if you ever just need freshening up or some job men or anything, please tell me. So then he calls me that night and he says, Jerry, I am very, very sick. And and I won't be around long. And he said, my boy wants to own the world. And and he wants to take this territory and expand it all over the U.S. and then all over the world. And he said, I don't know if he will make it or not. But he said, the thing that I do know is they'll come in his life when he desperately needs a real friend. Huh. And I said, Vince, I can't foresee him ever calling me. But if he does, I'll be there. Huh. And, and Vince, I, he died within a couple of weeks of that call. So, you know, that was in the back of my mind, and I meant it when I said it, but I never in a hundred years thought Vince would call. And one uh-huh. day, one Sunday, he called, and he said, I just need somebody to talk to you, Jerry. I, it's hard for me to talk to the people that work for me. Uh-huh. And the conversations were so long and so intense of a personal nature he would tell me everything about his life and i'd tell him everything about mine (laughs) and so much so that my wife when we go to a dinner party somebody would say what are you doing friday and she'd go well monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday vince day monday tuesday and they would laugh and say, "What is Vince Day? Oh, Jerry spends four hours talking to this promoter in New York."
0: And what, we, what year was this, uh, Jerry? I just want to get a, a, a perspective of where Vince was on his I'm journey. I'm going to
1: guess it was your last year, '93.
0: Okay. Uh-huh. Wow. And, uh huh.
1: And um, so um, those, Vince those were troubled spent, times. Oh, yeah, Vince. And he was under terrific pressure. Yeah, yeah. And so we would talk about, uh, you know, Pat Patterson has his problems. Mm -hmm. And so Vince had to let him go home because Mm of some referee accusation. I don't know if it's true or not. Never asked Pat about it. Mm -hmm. But then he had three women that had lawsuits about sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Then he had the press in New York that was just absolutely vicious. And the bad between the bad press and the stress on Vince, the territory was at an all-time low.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And finally, he said, uh, I know I'm asking a lot because... I've been your competitor, but I have some great people. Pat Patterson's a great finish man. J.J. J. Dillon is great at talent relations. I've got the best treasurer. Uh, everything is working. But if I have to, and Linda is the glue that holds this company together.
0: Yeah.
1: But Linda doesn't know anything about the wrestling business, Jerry the booking, the the day-to-day creative part. But I don't have anybody that if I have to go to jail can hold it all together. Mm-hmm. Would you consider coming up and just taking a look at it? And I said, Vince, if you would come to see me here in Tennessee, I live in a huge house in the middle of a hundred and seven acres. I've got horses, chickens, I've got a hundred head of the cattle you know, and then I'm making a pretty good living. And he said, Well I understand it if you can. And uh that Sunday conversation ended and and you know, then my memory jolted me of Vince Sr. and my promise. So I picked up the phone and called him back and I said, yeah, send me a plane ticket and I'll come up and look. So, you know,
0: that was the start of it. He was in a sense asking you to to run the business if he was going to go to prison. Yeah, yeah. well, he had a big
1: meeting. I think J.J. Dillon's... The only one I know that's talked about it. I saw a podcast or read it in the book or something. Vince had a meeting in the cafeteria and had all the chairs set up and he had a big table up at the head and uh, just three chairs and Vince was in the one on the right and he motioned me to sit down in the middle and Linda was on the other side. And he told the people, if Jerry comes in your office, it's the same thing as me walking in. Uh, Then he told them a little bit about my background and, and he said, uh, we never know what we're tomorrow's going to bring. And that was the end of the meeting. I, I didn't hmm. understand. He made a big deal out of just a five minute conversation. Hmm. I didn't talk. And, uh, but anyway, I, I really like Vince. I I think Linda is one of the smartest women. I, I have her on a level with my mother as far as intelligence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She really is one smart lady. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. And, uh, So anyway, I prayed that he would get exonerated. Jerry McDivitt, the attorney, said, no, you can't beat the government. We're going to fight as hard as we can, but get ready. Mm. You're going to have a lot on your shoulders. So I prayed, and then when Vince walked out on those steps that was on television, we were all glued to it. And they said he was exonerated. I started crying, and I went to my apartment there in Stanford and gave my furniture to the concierge guy, and I grabbed a few personal things and put them in my car. And so I love you, Vince, but I'm going home. (laughs)
0: Uh, what about that time, though, you did spend up there with with Pat and Bruce and the, the triumvirate, as I used to kind of refer to it. Uh, what was that experience like? The what? Th- to be around Bruce, uh, uh, Pat and, and Vince uh, and, you know, at the at the house in Greenwich, that was where they did things. And, and what was that experience like to be a part of that for uh, that brief period of time?
1: Well, Vince would do all of his creative work in his uh, dining room table. And uh, Pat and Bruce and I would come and uh, I really did not participate very much in the creative because I was trying to learn, uh, you know, they have the merchandise building the warehouse is huge yeah Yeah. I had to get a crash course on how that worked the TV station the studios uh, the finances the treasurer the the booking of the buildings and the arenas the scheduling J.J. Dillon's interaction with all the talent yeah It was, you know, my plate was more than full and sometime I'd show up and be kind of rum-dum. But anyway, Pat... Vince is... Vince is the boss. Yeah. And and doesn't... He'll ask for suggestions, but he really don't want any. Mm. And so... You know, the the things that I felt that were critical, I would talk to him about. He had the Lex Express campaign going when I first got there, and yeah. nobody would show up. And so, you know, I expressed myself. I said, Vince, Lex is a great guy. Looks like a million dollars, yeah. but he lacks the charisma to carry the banner for the WWF. Yeah. Who would you use? Well, I know you're not going to like this, but you have had giants, and giants. I love. I love Andre the Giant. I love Plowboy Frazier that we have. Uh, I, I like big men, but if I were going to name somebody, I'd take Bret Hart. He's got a yeah. He's got a great presence. Well, Vince went along with it. Uh, I I loved to watch personally Sean and Marty Mm Giannetti. And so I suggested that he put the tag belts on two little shrimps, as he called them, in Madison Square Garden. And I'm sure to this day it's the biggest pop the garden ever had. Uh So, if anybody wants to go back and trace history, uh, the introduction of smaller talent went from uh, 1994 forward.
0: Yeah. Well, and Brett... Brett uh, you know that was a great decision too. That was a great time for the business of them try, of, of trying to come back and, and, and succeeding eventually. But he came at a time when they definitely needed him, and it was a great decision at the time. Yeah, people, yeah, people yeah. want to check the numbers. I mean, it's, it's well. I mean, it, uh, you, the way it you,
1: went. You know, compare Sean
0: yeah.
1: to, and I, I love Scott Hall. I mean, he and I are really close to this day, uh-huh. but. Sean is like a shrimp compared to Scott Hall and
0: Kevin Nash and all those things. Kevin Nash.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, they had the, the deal where Kevin Nash was Sean's uh, bodyguard.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: And, uh, you know, that showed the contrast in size. So I, I think that I had, that's an area I had creative influence. most of my influence was business related, yeah, uh, but I'm sure
0: I, you you thought it was a blessing when uh, Vince did get exonerated, and you didn't have to take over <laughs> oh take, yeah deal I, with that. I,
1: <laughs> yeah i
0: i was I was drinking three or four bottles of wine night,
1: <laughs> every
0: night. Uh, but uh i i kept you a while but um i you've really had uh these these close encounters i guess to go with with the superstars that uh you know have gone on to in the stratosphere of the, in the history of professional wrestling but you saw many of them before they anybody even knew their names and uh you know one that, that certainly stands out you you saw uh Dwayne Johnson who eventually of course we know became the the mega star he is now the rock but uh, back then, you saw him when he was, uh, you know, Rocky Johnson's kid.
1: Yeah, uh, Rocky and I were really, really close. Yeah, uh, I, he was my first black champion, mm-hmm. and Rocky and I still talk to this day. He's a he's a wonderful human being, mm-hmm. and you can tell uh, somebody that is has had the financial success of. Dwayne Johnson and yeah. is still humble and you never hear anything ugly about him. you know that his parents did a lot of parenting and Rocky and Peter's wife did a Peter's daughter mm-hmm. did a uh,
0: incredible job. Yeah, and and um, we mentioned before about finding and becoming your, your own unique person. That was always in Dwayne, and and uh, it was when he found it and when he trusted it, when he became this uh, incredible star in yeah. the ring.
1: Well, and you know the same is true with Sting and Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan and Jerry yeah. Lawler and yeah, all of them. I my contribution was not in making them superstars, but in making them believe in themselves and to portray themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the big secrets of the business.
0: Well, yeah. And, and another one And you, uh, someone like Hulk Hogan, who you saw early on and, and you made a statement, uh, that at the time when you saw him, he hadn't, decided that he was a professional wrestler I think as you put it but I think it's more that he hadn't found uh himself and who he was in the in the charisma and and recognized what he had uh, to be that unique person who you know certainly has got to be among the absolute biggest um, personalities in the in the history of professional wrestling
1: yes Louis Tillette called me one day and he said I've got a big blonde bass player in a band (laughs) and he said uh, and you know Louis was trying to flatter me he said you can turn this raw piece of clay into a superstar if you'll just try I said well where is he in his training he said he has difficulty walking and chewing bubble gum at the same time wow I said, oh, Louis, what, what do you, no, just let him come up there if you have to send him right back to Florida.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So my wife and I were in the kitchen, and you could see the street in front of our house. And he pulled out and uncalled out of that car, the giant that he was, and long, blonde hair. And uh-huh. I said, well, Louie was right. I'm going to try to do something. Uh-huh. And I, I took him, he really was uncoordinated, couldn't wrestle at all. Uh-huh. I took it on myself to take him to Tupelo, Mississippi, where my father-in-law had a ring set up permanently.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, you know, he's so big, and I'm relatively small, I was probably 220 at the time, that I thought he's going to kill me. We we figured out the big leg drop that he used his whole career. Well, believe it or not, to not hurt your opponent takes a lot of timing of where your butt lands and where your leg lands and where the face is in the crook where the knee bends.
0: Yeah,
1: right. Well, it hurts. Yeah.
0: that changed i'm glad (laughs) he learned how to do it
1: he he ended up (laughs) breaking every record there is to break yeah yeah uh
0: a a couple of others and we could talk about this all day but um i know that uh, randy savage and he, he randy is somebody who was really special to me i got to work with him quite a bit and uh I don't know if there's anybody who sacrificed more in the ring and and, and for the business than Randy. And I know that, uh, that you had a, a really great relationship with him too.
1: Yes. Yes. I'm one of the guys that i more than like, I really loved Randy. Yes. I love the character mm-hmm. of Randy yeah. Savage. He, uh, they ran against us. Um, my, course of action was to not mention them and not let any of our talent mention them mm-hmm. so when they decided to fold up uh, he called me and said I'm going to throw in the towel and I just want to tell you that you kicked my butt in the most gentlemanly fashion I wish you'd have been on that A W S. And uh, I said, well, Randy, why don't you come to work for me? You've knocked Lawler and Dundee for a year. The fans Mm -hmm. think that you were building up to an angle. Let's cash in on it. Uh And he came to work, and the rest is history. They sold out everywhere. (laughs) And then when uh, Vince called him, you know, Randy Savage is the only wrestler that Vince called. And Vince's style would say, I need you tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And Randy the, the Savage. Said, well, if you can't allow me two weeks notice, then I'm not interested in coming. Huh. Uh, I have a friendship with Jerry that I, I wouldn't break for any opportunity. And I, You know, that speaks volumes about the character of a man. Uh. That he was willing to pass up going to the WWE to keep his word. Yeah. And he's the only one who ever did that. Only one.
0: Wow. That's a great Uh,
1: Yeah, I I miss him to this day. I had a home in Sanibel Island. And whenever I'd go down or come back, I'd go to there at Pete, St. Pete Beach or Indian Rocks, uh, one of those, I can't remember now. I'd go over and we'd sit up on his balcony that overlooked the ocean and uh, laugh about things that happened. Uh, every time he would want me to retell the story of him at Madison Square Garden, Vince thought he was going to try to kill him and Uh I ran down the hall and grabbed Randy and pushed him in the first room that was available and little Richard was in there and I, I know he wet his pants. (laughs) (laughs) He thought thought, this guy is crazy. Uh So anyway, you know, we'd have big laughs and conversations
0: and, why do you think it ended so badly uh, with him in the WWE, and it never seemed as though it ever was fixed, and, and, and it wasn't?
1: Well, Randy believes that if you give your word, mm-hmm. you uh, you, live by you, it. you die keeping it. Yeah, and Vince had Randy move to Stanford. Yeah, and he was going to put him on the creative team. And then Vince had second thoughts because Randy can be very volatile and mm. the character that he has on TV sometime will come out in, in his real life.
0: Yeah. He lived it.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so Vince changed his mind and instead of telling Randy, it didn't work out and here's the money to leave. He kept telling him later, 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 later. Uh. And uh, Randy just went nuts at Madison Square Garden one night.
0: Oh boy! Yeah,
1: now, um, that was the end of him up there. Yeah, uh,
0: I'm. I, I mentioned it. I'm also a big fan of of your son Jeff, and uh, I, we don't have a lot of time to cover uh, him, but uh, he was quite an athlete, and it could have been a basketball player if uh, you know he didn't decide he just didn't want to do it anymore, but. Um, were you proud of him early on when, when he uh, decided to get into the business and found success or did you, would you have preferred that he didn't get into the business?
1: Well, you know, my father left when I was three. Yeah. So my parenting was kind of on the fly okay. and I believed that you could give your children your opinion, but don't try to enforce or live your life through them Mm -hmm. so you know was I disappointed absolutely Uh, Jeff only got to play his senior year because of my divorce from his mother and she objected to him when he came to live with me and so he was rudely ineligible and so he only got play his senior year and the big schools were hesitant and several of them told him Well go to a small school so yeah. he went to Aquinas Junior College and started as a freshman and Vanderbilt came to a couple of his ball games, recruiters and, and his coach Jeff came to me one day and said I'm through with basketball. I, uh, the coaches know the guys are smoking weed on the bus to the trips, and they don't care about winning. They just are here. I won't out, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'd like to break into the wrestling business. I said, well, I think that you would be a lot better off getting your education in the event you don't make it in the wrestling business. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'll know pretty quick and you'll know quicker if I'm (laughs) going to make it and I can go back to school then, but I just want to take a year off. Well, he took a year off and never went back.
0: Rest is history. Yeah, and and, and uh, you guys uh, were estranged for a while, and with the with the uh, business, but it's, oh. it, everything's good now. I mean, it was two thousand fifteen, yes. I think. And, and how, how how great is that relationship now? Now, yeah, uh, very. A son it, in your life. He,
1: here's yeah. here's the thing: we don't spend a whole lot of time together because I put the condition because the wrestling business is what caused the breach in our family. Yeah. And so I told him, don't ever ask me about the wrestling business or what I'm doing, and I'll never ask you. Let's pretend that you work in a beer brewery and I work in a whiskey distillery, and, and we don't know anything about the wrestling business. So we have stuck to that. Well, he's with the WWE now and traveling seven days a week. Uh, There's very little for us to talk about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> tried right that this whole life now, but I, I, I'm glad when you do talk. I'm sure it's great, Jerry Jared. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could have uh, gone on for a few more hours. You have so many great stories to tell. I hope we can do it again sometime, and and I hope we actually get to meet in person. That'd be great. Yes,
1: I do too, Sean. And I'm I'm sorry I missed your illustrious career, but uh, maybe. Maybe who knows what tomorrow brings?
0: That's exactly right. We're still in the game.
1: (laughs) Yeah.